Welcome to the AC4 series, and AC4 stands for the Advanced Consortium for Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity here at Columbia University. My name is Beth Fisher Yoshida. I am faculty and the academic director of the Master of Science in Negotiation and Conflict Resolution program in the School of Continuing Education. And I'm filling in for Professor Peter Coleman, who is a professor at Teachers College and the Earth Institute. Today, I'd like to welcome my guest, Detective Jeff Thompson, and I'm going to ask Jeff to introduce himself a little bit more. Hi, Jeff. Welcome. Hi. Thank you, first of all, for having me on. My name is Jeff Thompson, as Beth just said. I'm a detective in the New York City Police Department. I also have a few other titles that I might just throw out there. I'm currently a research fellow here at Columbia University Law School, and I'm also a PhD candidate at Griffith University Law School. And when I have some free time in my life, I like to try and do mediation as well. Wow. I don't know when you have the chance to do that. You have to mediate your own life there, too. <laughs> so we have lots to talk about today. And um, you also, another thing I, I know you did mention is that you're active in ACR, which is the Association for Conflict Resolution, Greater New York Chapter. Mm -hmm. Are you active in the national organization or just the New York Chapter? Well, it's a bit of both. I'm actually, I'm a board member of the New York Chapter. And then with the national organization, you know, it's sort of trying to practice what we all preach as professionals. I do a lot of collaboration work with the national organization between them and one organization, ADRhub.com, and just trying to help promote all the good work that they're doing. We recently did something with the international section where we had free webinars online for people to listen in about some really excellent people in the field that are doing things all over the world, not just the country. So I like to try and keep myself busy, and there's lots and lots of brilliant people out there that I try and work with. That's great. So these particular free webinars, if people miss it, is there, are there podcasts or a way that they can get back to them to listen to them? Yeah, there's, it, there's a whole, quite a lot of webinars archived at ADRhub.com, and it really goes, uh, there's a whole variety of it. If you want just specifically the ones for the international section, you just go to ADRhub.com slash ACR International. And you can okay. read about all of them, too. And is this for members of ACR, or is it open to everybody? No, it's, it's free for everybody. That's wow. one of the good things about the website, ADRhub.com, is it's a free portal. It's anyone can access it. And it was one of the, the ideas when I helped develop it with the Werner Institute was how can we make conflict resolution skills, information available to everybody free no matter where they are. And that sort of ties into like with here at Columbia with the students too, because when I was a student or I'm one of those people that's trying to always be a student regardless of how old that I am now, and realizing there was all these great maybe conferences or events all over the country or even within New York City, the country, the world, and you can't always attend them because of financial reasons. That's why one of the reasons the ADR Hub was put together, to give that opportunity for everybody, no matter where they are, what their situation is, especially financially, where they can have access to some of the great people in the field. That sounds great, and it's really, really good that uh, more and more information becomes accessible through things such as this. That's wonderful. So we have lots to talk about, so maybe you can tell a little bit about your doctoral research and where you are in that process, what you're studying, and so on. Ah, as I say this, smiling right now, and <laughs> it is sort of the pun is intended because I'm researching nonverbal communication and mediators, and I smile because where am I on this journey? I believe I'm two and a half years into it. It's fantastic. I'm enjoying every moment of it, however it is 
fairly time consuming, which people did warn me. But they, so the main emphasis of my research is in, I like it when people ask me this because I try and explain it as pithy as I can, but try to get everything out all usually in one breath. So here we go, my attempt at that. A long that. breath. Yes. <laughs> so my attempt at that is I'm looking at the role of what are, what are the skills of effective mediators and what do they do? And when I did my review of the literature, it, I came up with three important things that I believe that all the literature showed that encompasses effective mediators, and that's rapport, professionalism, and trust. And then my argument is each of those are primarily displayed through nonverbal communication channels. So I'm looking at all the different elements of how rapport, professionalism, and trust are developed, and one of the things that I'm finding is they don't occur in a vacuum. It's a lot of these nonverbal actions and elements complement each other, and they occur in a gestalt fashion where when you're building rapport, you're also developing trust. And when you display professionalism, it's building rapport and trust. So it's that cyclic nature that really, I think, uh, shows what mediators are doing and what they think they're doing effectively. So it, there's three components to the research. The first study was I sent out a survey to mediators all over the world. I got about, I'd say, 400 responses, getting feedback from them and a whole variety of nonverbal communication and mediation. Then what I did was I reached out to uh, it's professors and mediation trainers. So I wanted to see how are they teaching nonverbal communication, also specifically, again, rapport, professionalism, and trust. And now the last component, which I'm just about to finish up, is I'm observing actual mediators to see what they're doing. So at the end of a very, very long day, I will have what mediators say they do, what they're being taught, and what are they actually doing. Well, and are you looking for what is consistent and maybe some gaps between those three? Well, right, it's, it's trying to figure out, okay, do they say they do one thing and they actually do another, or how are they being taught? And what, what do they say they do also? Because the survey was asking, well, are there certain skills, are there certain things that you do in regards to building rapport? And now I have also the second part was, well, what are they being taught in regards to the rapport? Are they even being taught how to develop rapport? And then what are they actually doing? Because a lot of the literature and nonverbal communication shows we do a lot of things on a subconscious or subtle level that we don't even know what we're doing. And then you also add to it is there's like, for example, you know, if someone says, oh, that mediator was really good or that person's really friendly, it's easy to identify those macro effective cues like friendly, warm, compassionate, but it's really tough for people to pinpoint the individual motions that they're doing. And that's what I'm trying to do with my research. Yeah, I would imagine it's probably very helpful to the mediators to reflect back what you observe because I can think of myself when I've mediated and I can say to you, well, these are the things I do intentionally, but there are probably a whole lot of things I do without me being aware of them. Mm. Yeah, and one of the things just I think in generally, and I've noticed because I have an emphasis, I'm also looking at the mediator's introduction, which is a whole other component of my research, the thin slice methodology portion of it. However, like you look at it, we don't know necessarily what we're doing, so we say, okay, you know, I try not to ever point, which is what a lot of mediators will say. However, like even when I was doing speech classes and trainings, people really rarely ever realize how many ums they say. Oh, and yeah. I sort of connect that with, you know, it's occasionally it's fine to say, oh, um, I'm not sure. Well, how do you feel about that? However, if you're doing it during the introduction, and instead of, you, you know, for example, using silence for a second to separate your sentences if every sentence is punctuated by um I think that might have a negative effect on your professionalism 
It's interesting because um, years ago when I lived in Japan, I used to be a Toastmaster. Oh, okay. And yeah. one of the things they do in Toastmasters is you had to pay a penalty for how many. <laughs> so you had somebody sitting there counting how many ums and mm, uh, and all the different kinds of sounds you could make. So yes, the whole idea about having that silence, which sounds very, lo- it feels very long mm. when you're silent, but for the other party, it's really not that long at all, and can be disturbing if they start focusing on your ums instead of focusing on the real information you're supposed to be uh, saying. Mm-hmm. So great. So is there anything else you wanted to share about your research? Because I think it's it's fascinating about the rapport, the professionalism, and the trust. How and much time do we have? Oh. <laughs> no, we don't have that much time. Um, anything well, poignant. There, there, there's a few things that I'd like to touch on. Uh, maybe just to go over some of the responses in the survey of how mediators say they develop rapport. So the right. question they asked them list up to five ways. So instead of letting them pick from, you know, 30 choices, or whatever, I just wanted them to write in whatever they wanted. And they didn't have to, but some of the, the, the top some of the top results that I got back from them, number one, which, again, some of these aren't surprising. In uh, my argument with my research is I, I haven't found these specific skills listed before in our field. Of course, you and I, we've heard plenty of trainings or people that are really well-known in the field give anecdotal stories, which are still very, very important. I'm not discounting that, but we've never really had the quanti- uh, qualitative or quantitative the specific percentages explain that. So, like, for example, now we can say, if you want to say, in my survey, eye contact was the number one listed way for how mediators develop rapport, and that was nearly half it actually what, it was 50%. And then number two was warmth, which is a more generalized one where that, you know, it's being friendly, being kind, being open. And then listening was number three. And number four was active listening, which I purposely didn't combine the two because if someone wrote in listening, listening is a more cognitive aspect to it where active listening involves some sort of movement that the other person sees, whether it's not in your head or smiling when someone says something or the gesturing and open-handed for them to keep talking. So that, that I thought that was pretty uh, interesting at the very least. One of the other things, too, that I looked at was the mediator's appearance and the choice of tables and the environment factors. And th- there was a lot of good data that I got back also based on different the location where the mediator practices. And I broke it down by North America, you know, USA, Canada, then the UK, and then Australia, New Zealand. And just one quick thing as far as like with room displays, interestingly, mediators from the UK preferred just chairs without tables in a room. And then in like another example is uh, as far as when we asked the profession of the mediators, mediators that mediate in court mediations, their preference was, which I don't think would be surprising, they prefer business suits as the male mediator's appearance, which Right, we're both not in our heads. Yes, yeah, no, 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 Jeff, that's common sense. However, the interesting thing was it was just only over 70% that said that was appropriate. Court mediators saying a male mediator to wear business. So they, I believe it was 28% said it was not appropriate, which oh. I found fairly interesting trying to figure out. So they didn't yeah. just not answer. They actually said not appropriate. Right, it was the choice. It was okay. the outfit. There were four outfits. It was the business suit, business casual, casual, and then like a polo shirt and jeans. So it was the option of appropriate or not appropriate. Interesting. And it brings to mind when you talk about the formal kinds of mediation training that take place in educational facilities or in training companies and so on. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about 
when you think of mediation training, it talks about the ideal setting. And I know right. that we don't always have ideal settings. And from my own experience, I think I shared with you when I was doing small claims court mediation, we were in the hallway on a bench. <laughs> Everybody lined up like in a choo-choo train right next to the metal detector and people walking all over the place. Yet there was something remarkable that all of us were able to concentrate and focus on the topic at hand rather than all the distractions. In informal mediation training, we're always talking about to have a quiet place or mm -hmm. a place that's secluded from other, other people and other noises and things like that. And that's not always the reality of real-time mediation. Right. And I think that's... a. Uh, great point that you point uh, that you say there and it's what I'm trying to do with my research and when I even interviewed the professors and the trainers I think we can all agree that there's the ideal world and this is even what I say in mediation sessions when where I'm trying to get people to look at options or realistic options there's the ideal world and then there's reality right so asking people what's their preference like in regards to a table okay some will say a conference table a circle table and then you and I we've had that experience where we're going to be mediating out in a hallway of people walking by right as we start to talk about the confidentiality issues and saying mm -hmm. oh <laughs> that doesn't really work. and it's trying to you know just converge to both right. and at the end of the day if people are able to look at the information that I'm providing reflect on it and hopefully be better mediators, then I'll smile. Yeah, so you know, I'd like to segue now because you're talking about mediation. Maybe we should just say what mediation is because there might be some listeners who are not familiar. We've been sort of throwing that term around a lot. Mm -hmm. How would you define just mediation? Well, that's funny because that's what I ask the people <laughs> in my survey, so I should have my own definition. So without having, share theirs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, without having it in front of me off the top of my head, I would describe mediation is a situation where there's two people involved in a dispute or a conflict and they're trying to use communication to resolve it and with the help of a third party neutral person, the mediator, that helps guide them. And they don't tell people what to do. They maintain the two people involved in a conflict, their self-determination, but they try and help them communicate effectively to walk out of there with a, an agreement that they both agree on. And nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That, that I think that's very useful. We also throw in the terminology of facilitated negotiation, because mm -hmm. obviously if the people could work it out themselves, perhaps they would have without a third party. But I wanted to segue also into your work as a detective a little bit, and I'm just wondering how does your knowledge about mediation and the studies that you're doing inform your practice? And we talked about ideal or not ideal situations. I would imagine there would be times in your work that you have mm -hmm. to go in and use the skills and the, and the concepts of mediation, even if it's not a formal mediation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, one of the ways that I always try and describe it is a lot of the work that I do in the police department, and it's not just me, it's all police officers, it's mediation, quite often I say, with the little m. So it's not the formal where you're giving your introduction and people sign the confidentiality agreement. It's utilizing these skills constantly and interacting with people, whether it's on the street, that first time, very minimal interaction, just to engage a person, or a long-term situation where you're responding to something where you're trying to help somebody if they were a victim of a crime, or even trying to, in effect, an arrest. It's using communication to either contain or de-escalate a situation or even prevent. And one of the things that I did a lot when I was working in the Community Affairs Bureau for over five years, it's basically a, a bureau where this, uh, the specialty is to work with the community and to make sure people are happy and to make sure people are happy with the police department. Well, it's a great job. And utilizing these conflict resolution skills or the little M for mediation is just one of the most important things for police and I think everybody in the world that has to interact with people is the word empathy and seeing things through someone else's eyes, realizing I have this training as a police officer, I understand all the rules of what people can or can't do, what they might not, because 
they've never been in that situation before. So sometimes realizing, taking that extra breath, that mindfulness of explaining to somebody, well, this is what that means. And that ranges from, you know, one-on-one personal interactions to large-scale events. And I like to say myself and others use it, especially in the police department, it works. It works really well. And it's just spreading that message that one of the most important tools that a police officer has is not something that necessarily you see on his belt, but it's his ability to communicate. And it's always a work in progress, but it's something that I've been doing for over 10 years now, and I'm, I enjoy it a lot. You know, it's really refreshing to hear because, unfortunately, it's the bad news that gets publicized. It's not the good news. And the good news would be that I'm sure, based on what you're saying now and, and knowing your work, that there are many police officers who use these skills on a regular basis, and so therefore we're not hearing about what could have happened because it didn't happen because mm-hmm. they were able to de-escalate. They were able to show empathy. They are able to communicate and build rapport and build relationships with people. It's what I said, but it's the unfortunate part that you hear about that little, little small percentage of stuff that goes wrong, and then people sort of, mm-hmm. sort of blanket over and have a bad image. But it's like I said, it's refreshing to hear that a lot of police officers use those kind of skills. Is it part of the training at the police academy? Yeah, it's it's definitely one of the core requisites for a police officer. One of the skills there, I would say it's fairly safe to say it's required that they have to be effective communicators. And that's definitely emphasized quite often. And it's not just in the academy. Officers learn it throughout their entire career because, like, we got you going back to, you know, in mediation there's a saying in trainings, you know, the mediator's toolbox. And it's having lots of tools that you use appropriately at the right time are based on the context and that's something that's very important in the police department and it's not always sometimes I call it mediation but it's also it's just basic conflict resolution skills it's not just mediation skills which sort of what it's what brings me here to Columbia University mm-hmm. as well which I'm very very fortunate to be the recipient this year of the Raymond W. Kelly scholarship which allows me to attend this year for an academic full year to Columbia University Law School and firstly, the scholarship is, I'm really fortunate to have it. It's also, it's sponsored and funded by the New York City Police Foundation, which sees the value in making sure, as well as the police commissioner, making sure that police officers have the opportunity to get education and to get a higher education at a prestigious place like for Columbia, where one of the, so I'm here doing independent research. And one of the things that, one of the first studies that I'm looking at is going back to those conflict resolution skills, specifically crisis and hostage negotiators. And what are the skills that they use in a very distinct, unique situation? And by doing the research, trying to get that collection of the skills they use, not only to help other crisis and hostage negotiators, but if they're using these skills and if they're using them effectively because they are experts in these really tense situations, my argument is it's pretty important for everyone else, including me, to know what they're using because then I think if it works in those settings, we could apply it to whatever it is that we do in life professionally. That's great. So I just wanted to mention, if somebody's listening to us now and didn't hear the beginning of our program, that this is the AC4 series, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at Columbia University. And this is Beth Fisher-Yoshi, the faculty and academic director of the Master of Science in Negotiation and Conflict Resolution at the School of Continuing Education. And I'm interviewing Detective Jeff Thompson, who happens to be a research fellow this year at the law school at Columbia. And he was just mentioning his, he's a recipient of the Raymond W. Kelly Scholarship. And I wanted to give a shout out to a former recipient of that uh, scholarship. And it's Lieutenant Mark Turner with the NYPD, who is a graduate of the Negotiation and Conflict Resolution Program. So it's heartening mm-hmm. to see that the police are sending the police department and the police foundation are sending people to Columbia University for all this great work and great training, and I'm happy to have you here. 
You know, it's really interesting because uh, we talk about crisis and hostage negotiation. Mm -hmm. We talk about mediation, conflict resolution, and we talk about how, in some ways, and I use the quote, "simple," it could be if we just if we would just communicate effectively, if we would just actively listen and really pay attention and show empathy. So, on one hand, it seems really simple to do. Well, oh, gee, I can do that. I can communicate. I can show empathy. But on the other hand, we know from real life practice <laughs> that it's not so simple. So what are some of the things that get in the way of us being able to be effective communicators and show empathy? Well, I think it, looking at it, first of all, it's so much easier to talk about it or to tell people, hey, this is how you do it. And then we all realize then when it happens to us, it's like, all right, that's all out the door. I'm angry. I am going to scream. I'm going to yell. I'm going to point my finger because I want to point my finger. So it's, um, it's always a work in progress. And I think looking on the literature, specifically like in crisis and hostage negotiations, when the negotiator is trying to help somebody, it's, there's a massive imbalance during that crisis. And then they're, as crisis, they're intervening, trying to help people where the imbalance is occurring, where the, the person that they're working with is operating from a much overbearing load of an emotional perspective and what the hostage crisis negotiators do as well as mediators or regular negotiators they help try and bring that balance back to where it's an equal level of emotion and cognition and how do, how does a crisis negotiator do that or how does anyone do that well it's not simple but the skills are easy to remember it's just hard to use sometimes so like active listening and Everyone says, okay, right, what's active listening? Now, there's specific components to it, and when possible in situations, you know, there's eye contact with the person that you're interacting with. There's head nodding to let them know that you're listening. There's open-handed gestures facing towards them, leaning towards them. And again, you look at it, this is specifically relevant and corresponds with research on building rapport, and that's what you're doing as a crisis negotiator or as a regular negotiator or just somebody trying to get along with people. It's that listening. And one of the... Um, great uh, quotes or an aphorism that I love saying is the opposite of listening is waiting to speak and then another one which I didn't come up with these that's why I'm calling them great I'm not <laughs> another one is seek to understand before looking to be understood let the other person have that opportunity to speak and let them know and summarize reflect back not just the story but then also the emotion in it it's okay to say oh wow well it sounds like you're really angry and if they're right, they'll say, yeah, yeah. Or if you're right when you say that, they'll be like, yes, you're right, I really am angry. Or if you say, hey, look, hey, look, I, you repeat back to them, you say, it sounds like you're really angry about that. Maybe if you didn't hit it right uh, accurately, they'll tell you, no, I'm really pissed off or whatever. And by doing that, letting people tell their story and letting them know that their story's been heard, I think is one of the critical first steps towards moving towards a resolution. And what does resolution mean? Sometimes, you know, in a business dispute, it's, having an agreement over a contract. Other times it's just having a better understanding between two people. It's so active listening and building the rapport from a few of those examples. I think it's been demonstrated in crisis and hostage negotiations, but it also applies to everything that we do. And because we're all human, there's no finish line in that regards, but it's a work in progress. And Absolutely. So I'm going to bring up a recent example. I'm sure you're familiar with what happened in Georgia a little while ago with Antoinette Tuff, mm -hmm. who was the person who was taken hostage, and how remarkable her performance, I should say, was. I mean, she was just, when I heard her, you know, and the call when they played it on 
the news a few days later. It was remarkable. A couple of things that struck me in what she did was she was respectful to the person. She treated him as another human being, mm -hmm. and she connected with deep empathy. I mean, that was the first thing that just stood out in my mind. Tremendous empathy. She didn't play victim. She didn't scream. She didn't get hysterical. Whatever. She just stayed calm and steady and just c connected with that person as another human being. And I think that disarmed him. I think that whole way she was able to connect and, and show his humanity to himself, I think, was just remarkable. Do you have any comments about Well, I think, that? yeah, and I think that's perfect a perfect example of the idea that it's a collection of actions and a collection of possibly sometimes little subtle actions that add to that calmness, to her having that ability to keep cool under chaos and being able to handle the situation. And it's, it's not easy, whether you're in police or you're a civilian that gets thrown into this situation because it's a crisis you didn't expect it. And I think one of the, the key things are, it's not just someone's personal disposition of how they are because we all know people that are really calm and friendly and peaceful. And then we also know people that easily fly off the handle. The, the good thing that I think research has demonstrated is regardless of how good or bad you might be at that, the idea is that uh, the research has demonstrated that the, you can learn it or you can get better at that. You can be better at active listening and it's just being mindful of it. And one of the most important things I think for all of us, regardless of anyone that's listening to what your profession is, one of the things I always emphasize is practice, 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 no matter what you do, especially these effective communication skills. And I always refer to my favorite uh, soccer football team out there is Manchester United. They're not the best team in the world because they won the title and they never practice anymore. It's they do it day in and day out. And it's the same thing for us. And one of the things actually just jumping back to is sure. that I created with my research, my PhD research is realizing the importance of all these nonverbal communication elements are everywhere. And, you know, you think about, okay, wait, hold on. Jeff said I got to have eye contact. Okay, I'm doing that. Jeff said nod my head. Okay, now smile for a little while. Lean forward. Open-handed gesture. Good, good. And then the person finishes talking, and they say, so what do you think? And I'm like, wait a minute. I have no idea what the person said because I've been concentrating on all these dumb <laughs> nonverbal elements. So what I try to do to help myself firstly now to try and help others be mindful of it but not be completely overwhelmed is I have this acronym that I call META, M-E-T-T-A. And the acronym stands for, it's all the possible nonverbal communication elements involved in any interaction or situation. So the M is for movement, that's what people would basically think is body language. The E is environment, like we talked about before, is like, where do you decide to have that meeting or that interaction in your office or at a cafe and wondering what the impact can have. The first T is for touch. And one version of touch is do you shake hands with people? Like if you're having a meeting, will you shake hands with everybody? If not, also what kind of handshake do you have? Another touch is, one called leakage, and that's the scientific term too. There's no fancy word. It's it's uh, self adapters or self touching to show that you're, you know, there's anxiety or discomfort or you know, think for example when someone's really nervous, they're playing with their wedding ring or touching the back of their neck. The other um, T is for tone, and we all know the same when we're growing up. It's not what you say, but how you say it. Well, yes, it's still important what you say, but the, your tone is very very important. And the last one is A is appearance. And so the meta acronym, I think it's helped me and other people said it's helped them. So maybe for the listeners, it might help them as well. And one thing I just want to say, too, is really important because with the crisis and hostage negotiation research that I'm doing, um, when I've interacted with some of the negotiators or just other people in general, they'll say, well, a lot of those don't really apply because quite often a lot of the negotiations being done over the phone or the people can't see each other. So, you know, the movement doesn't matter, the touch or... They said the tone, yeah, definitely the tone. But 
the the way that I try and describe that is even think right now, all of us or anyone that's listening or next time you're on the telephone, try not to move your hands at all and think about how important gestures are, not only for the person that you're communicating with, but for yourself to articulate what you're saying. And think about that's just, I think, one example that shows, although one channel might not really, one nonverbal channel might not be present, it's still fairly important. And movement's one example of that with your gestures. Yeah, so I, I would imagine that the movement does have an impact on your voice. And when I lived in Japan, mm. I remember watching people on the telephone, and they would bow to each other on the telephone. I thought, why are they bowing to each other? Because it is, they can't see it, right? It wasn't mm. a video phone, it was a regular phone. But it also brings me then to the next point I have. You talked about your meta acronym here, and I'm think, and then other things we've talked about, and I'm just thinking about the role of culture, and I'm mm-hmm. thinking about the role of different cultural orientations, and that we talk about, you know, touch or movement or environment, and uh, there might be some differences from culture to culture, and it doesn't mean that everybody of one particular cultural orientation is the same. It just means that there might be certain tendencies or certain kinds of behaviors that are encouraged or Uh, yeah, encouraged or approved of or not approved of. So any comments you have about cultural orientation with this? Well, right. One of the times that comes up a lot is in regards to touch or shaking hands. And I do a lot of interfaith dialogue work as well. And I just know I do a lot of work with the Buddhist community. And I know you're not supposed to touch a female nun. And in that regards, they're not supposed to touch men and vice versa. So then people say, oh, well, what do you do in a situation like that? Like if you're mediating or negotiating and they put their hand out to shake your hand, but you're not supposed to touch them. And I'll say, okay, well, first context is very important in the culture, but also common sense applies. So if someone puts out their hand to shake my hand, I'm going to shake it. And so that also ties into with the research that I'm doing. It's primarily from a Western perspective. So it's, it's important to think of other cultures and specifically where touch or gaze aversion is another one where you'll see that. And there was a good study done on negotiation between Canadians and Chinese and the difference of how they were told to show timidness or how to show confidence, and there were variations. So keep that, I always say people to keep that in mind if it's a variation of your culture. And even I looked at that with my PhD research, and it was just like I was saying before, the, the difference in preference with um, mediators from the UK and how they prefer chairs and how the Australians and Americans primarily prefer a conference table as a setup. So that's, I think, very important in the show, even though all three could easily be saying that they're the Western perspective. When you're going to have a negotiation or a meeting with people over something important, think about it if how you even want to set up the room. So there's a lot of variables that come into play. But it's also, I think, at the end of the day, try and work with common sense as well. Yeah. I just have another question, and that would just be, you know, I don't have statistics on this, but I'm making an assumption that the majority of police officers do not also study to get PhDs and do research. <laughs> just what was, which came first? You wanted to be a police officer or you wanted to do research and you just became a police officer first? Just curious. It's sort of like the chicken or the egg question, <laughs> right? Um, I guess, so what happened, I joined the police department first, and I realized in certain situations myself, as well as other officers, that were in some pretty tense situations we were using communication and it helped resolve the situation but there I was scratching my head afterwards doing a self debrief which I didn't even know that it was called debriefing trying to figure out okay what worked here because I want to increase it but then why didn't it work so well in another situation so not to be one of my very long-winded without taking a breath answers I went down the path of trying to learn more and it's not just me others as well in the police department and the path I went down was I received my mediation training from the New York Peace Institute here in New York they're a fantastic organization then I went and said, that's not enough. I need more. Then I went and got my master's at Creighton University at their 
uh, master's in negotiation and dispute resolution. And then I said, no, no, not enough. I want to do more. So now I'm doing my PhD. Before I'm even finished with that, I am incredibly as hopefully well, you can see me smiling. I don't know if the people can hear. Again, I'm very fortunate to now that's brought me here to Columbia University, the law school. And it's the, the idea is I feel very fortunate to be able to use these skills and why not share it as much as I can. And at the end of each day, try and make the world a little bit of a better place. Thanks, Jeff. That's wonderful. So I want to thank our listeners for tuning in, and I want to thank Detective Jeff Thompson. I look forward to working with you this year and going forward. Thank you very much. Bye-bye now. Thank you.